Amen. Amen. I just want to say a couple of thank yous. Thank you to you guys for leading us every week. Thank you to uh, your dad for preaching last week and doing such a great job. And thank you for Warren for sharing a couple of weeks ago and doing a great job as well. I deeply appreciate uh, people leaning in and using their gifts to glorify God. Just like when you lean in and use your gifts to serve God the kingdom. I'm, I'm deeply thankful for that. And it's actually one of the great ways we grow in our relationship with God, right? Is to realize, to come to the place where we realize that, that life is, for lack of a better way of saying it, just not about us. Where we realize that life is not about serving ourselves, there we go, but really about serving God and serving others along the way. And we're going to talk about that lesson deeply today. But to begin, I want to invite you to do two things. I want to invite you to open your Bible to Daniel chapter 5. We're going to be in Daniel 5 today, uh, not concluding, but sort of for this year, tying together our series through Daniel. We'll pick it up again in January. After this week, we're going to jump into some of the passages in the Christmas story, and uh, we're going to begin a new series called Do You Hear what I hear. We want to take a look at the Christmas story and listen for those deeper themes of God's grace and God's goodness to us in all we do. To begin today, though, I want to have a little fun. You don't, we, we, we can have fun in church, can't we? Okay. And just so we're all equally lost, I remember, I would have remembered none of what I'm about to ask you had I not looked it up. But I want to play a little game this morning that I like to call Shakespeare or the Bible. Shakespeare or the Bible, to thine own self be true. Thank you. See, I don't mean this badly, but I noticed that everybody who had an answer is not young. It's like we used to, yeah, it's like we used to learn this stuff. (laughs) Uneasy lies the... Head that wears the crown. Not as confident? I hear two Shakespeare's. That one is Shakespeare as well. Uh, Let's try try this phrase. Uh, By the skin of your teeth. A cartoon. What is it, Bugs Bunny or something? Yeah. That's actually in the Bible, yeah, in the book of Job, in the book of Job, Uh, neither a borrower nor a lender be. I have often heard that attributed attributed to Benjamin Franklin, but it's Shakespeare, Shakespeare. Uh, How the mighty have fallen, yeah, that'd be the Bible, right? Go the extra mile. That'd be the Bible. At, at, at their wit's end. That one's in the Bible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we talked about this one weeks ago. She should know this, but feet of clay. That's in the Bible, yes. Yes, and the handwriting is on the wall. That's in the Bible, exactly. Uh, I think I had one more 
Shakespeare, it's a wise father that knows his own child. That one's Shakespeare. Uh, Drop in the bucket, go the extra mile. Uh, Sour grapes, feet of clay, handwriting on the wall. Those are all from the Bible. It's kind of interesting to think about how all these phrases end up in culture where we use them, but we don't really know where they come from. Today, we're going to talk about the hand writing on the wall. And in fact, if I were to slow that down, we're going to talk about the hand writing on the wall. You'll see what I mean in just a second. If you have your Bible, you can read it with me. I want to highlight the climax of the story for you because this story is about another king. Remember, Daniel served a bunch of kings and a bunch of kingdoms. He was faithful to serve God through all of them. But he's serving another king and another kingdom. This Actually, the same kingdom. This is still uh, the kingdom of Babylon, and this is King Belshazzar. And in verse 23, you get this. In fact, I think I put this verse in your notes for you and highlighted it for you. Verse 23 says, Instead, you have set yourself up, Daniel talking to Belshazzar, against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank from them, and you praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron and wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life. The God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. You know, I forgot one thank you. Brent, was that a violin? That was really nice to see this morning, man. Thanks for using your gift, bro. That was really good. That was really good. Not that we don't appreciate everybody else who, but it was a violin. That was cool to see. Do you do a little fiddle? <laughs> all good all right so backing the story up why why would Daniel say this that you don't honor the God who holds your life in his hand you have to see the rest of the story it goes like this King Belshazzar uh, Daniel 5 1 gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them and while Belshazzar was drinking his wine he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar his father that phrase leads to a little controversy, I'll explain, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the kings and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. And so they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. Notice the repetition here. It's, it's selling us that this is a sacrilegious thing, not just a getting drunk thing. This is a very sacrilegious thing that Belshazzar did. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of silver, of gold, of silver, of bronze, of iron, wood, and stone. And suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. And his face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. I guess knocking knees would be another phrase we could say, where'd that come from? His knees were knocking. Now, now we live in a day and age where picturing this really isn't that hard to picture. Because frankly, Disney, long before CGI, was able to make things like this happen in the movies and in the cartoons. And we would see stuff visually like this and think, oh, that's a nice special effect. 
This was all before the world of special effects. Long before any of that, he just sees a hand, a human hand. And it writes on a wall a message that he cannot decipher, and it, it has him afraid. The king summoned the enchanters, the astrologers, the diviners, and he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made third highest ruler in the kingdom. So just pause there for a second. Third highest ruler in the kingdom. I said that it, it said Nebuchadnezzar was his father, and that creates some controversy. So for the longest time, uh, there were archaeologists who didn't believe in the Bible who said, look, we can't find anything in history. We can't find anything in archaeology that shows us that there was a Belshazzar that was the king of Babylon. In fact, the records at the time, this would have been years ago, would have shown that that there was a son of Nebuchadnezzar called uh, Nabonius or Nabonidus. And Nabonidus was thought to be the last king of Babylon. So those outside the Bible who didn't believe in the Bible used it as evidence to say, see, you can't trust this book. And I just want to show you that along came archaeologists who discovered something that referenced the fact it was a, a tablet of some kind, for not tablet like, we use, right? But of some kind, buried from ancient Babylon, that said that indeed there was, Nabonidus was the king of Nebuchadnezzar, but he, he served as a co-regent with his son, Belshazzar, and they ruled the kingdom together. In fact, what it really told us is that Nabonidus toured the world as sort of the king of Babylon, not really paying attention to his kingdom, and he left his kingdom back at home for Belshazzar to rule. Hence, you have Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and then Belshazzar now says, whoever can tell me what this says, I will make third highest in the kingdom. Does this make sense? What it does for me is it's a confirmation that, that we have every reason to trust what the Bible says. Even when people come along and say, you can't trust this book because we can't find evidence of so-and-so or there's such-and-such a place that is mentioned there. That, that, that's like saying there's no gold in that mountain over there. How do you know until you dig it all up? How do you know until you search all of what we can find in archaeology? So anyway, that said... And to me, that sort of settles the controversy. It was common in that day to refer to past generations with like father or grandfather with the title father. Like we will speak of, you know, the, the founding fathers kind of thing. We don't literally mean that they're my dad, you know, that kind of thing. So anyway, just picking the story back up. All the king's wise men came in and they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. This should sound sort of familiar. Because this has happened over and over already in the book of Daniel with different kings. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale and his nobles were baffled. And the queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. So let's just, let's just notice for a second. This is the only place in the book of Daniel that a female speaks. So we really ought to pay attention to what she says. And it says the king, the queen rather, but I think it would be reasonable to assume that this is the queen mother or the queen grandmother. 
because of what she's going to say. And given the fact that all his wives and concubines were celebrating with him in the palace, or, and she is now coming in from the outside into the banquet hall, we get the sense that this was not his wife. She said, may the king live forever, which was a common greeting. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. And in the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. So she is, of course, talking about Daniel, who Belshazzar seems to have no clue about. Because the kingdom's kind of moved on from him. And he's still out there somewhere. He's still serving the kingdom. And he's still serving God in the kingdom. But the king's not relying on him. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the astrologers, and the diviners. And he did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, again, similar name, but different, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams and explain riddles and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight and intelligence and outstanding wisdom. And the wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now, I've heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. In other words, he couldn't be bought. If only this existed in the world today, you know? Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, now, I should pause here and give you a little background of the story. Babylon had ruled the world at this point. They'd been the, the, they're, they're the first of the great empires to rule over all of the world. They, they were... Uh, mighty for decades and decades and decades. And we're about to read of the end of the Babylonian Empire. And here's what's going on. Belshazzar is throwing a party with a thousand of his nobles, right? So he's got the leaders of the kingdom all gathered together. They're inside Babylon. What you don't know, but history would tell us, is that beyond the walls, and the walls of Babylon were significant. They were 350 or so feet wide, wide enough that chariots rose wide could ride on the top of them. They were, they were, they were tall enough that, that you easily had superiority over those down below. And so, so much faith was put in the city and in the walls of the city that the king believed that he was safe from everything and anyone. In fact, records would tell us historically that the king and the kingdom of Babylon had stored up 20 years worth of food inside the city walls so that no matter what happened outside the city walls, those on the inside were safe. Now what you also have to know is that the kingdom of Babylon had been at war 
with other kingdoms for much time. And those other kingdoms had come to the footstep, literally, of Babylon, meaning that most of his kingdom had already been lost and already conquered. In fact, those who opposed King Belshazzar, the enemy forces, were literally at the wall. Another way of saying that is that Belshazzar had basically given up his kingdom except for Babylon. And another way of saying that is that he had forgotten entirely about his responsibility to protect those in his kingdom. Because what's he doing? He's throwing a party, a big one. A thousand or so of his nobles and his wives and his concubines, and they're drinking it up, and they're doing this sacrilegious thing where they're... There's one other thing you got to know about Babylon. It was said to be safe because it had protection in the walls. They trusted in that. It had food, 20 years food supply stored up inside of it, and it had what seemed to be a never-ending water supply because the river Euphrates literally went under the city, under the walls, right into the city. So here's Daniel's interpretation of what's on the wall. Your majesty, verse 18, the Most High gave your father Nebuchadnezzar's sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. And because of the high position, he, this would be God, because of the high position God gave him, I'm pausing there because I want those words the word gave, give, I want that to seep deep into your mind. All the nations and the peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. And the king, those the king wanted, Nebuchadnezzar wanted to put to death, he put to death. And those he wanted to spare, he spared. And those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, you remember this story. This, this actually happened a few weeks ago. I, I taught about it. But it's in Daniel 4. When his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people, and he was given the mind of an animal. And he lived with the wild donkeys, and he ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God, this is Daniel's God, the Hebrew God, is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You've had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines, you drank from them. And you praise the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. This is a pretty fancy way of Daniel saying, you honored yourself, but you did not honor the sovereign God who is. That you honored yourself as God. And right about now, reading this story, you're tempted to say, I'm not a king, so I'm pretty sure this story doesn't apply to me. And I could say I'm not a king. 
because I'm not. I might have the last name of king, but I'm not a king. Not this kind. But this story absolutely applies to you and me. Because every single one of us does what King Belshazzar did. We elevate ourselves above the God of heaven. That, that, that we think that the world exists to serve me. And it's a trap we fall into, this trap of pride and ego and self that we fall into over and over and over again. So Daniel tells Belshazzar, and I think all of us, that this, therefore, verse 24, is why God sent the hand that wrote the inscription. And I would just pause long enough to have you ask, whose hand is this writing on the wall, the human hand? writing on the wall that appears to have the message of God. I mean, at some level, we could say this is an angelic hand, but this doesn't picture like an angel at all. It pictures like a human hand. And for me, I certainly wonder if this isn't the same, you know, as the fourth man in the fiery furnace, if this isn't, in my mind, the hand of Jesus pre-incarnate. Here's the inscription that was written. Many, many, or meany, meany. Tikal Parson, probably totally mispronouncing those words. Meany, meany, Tikal Parson. Or as he translates the uh, third word, fourth word later, uh, Perez, which Perez and Parson are just singular and plural of the same words, so don't get, don't get confused here. The word meany, is repeated twice. Here is what these words mean. Meaning, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tikal. You have weighed on you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And Perez or Parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And then at Belteshar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around her neck. His neck, he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. And when we get to Daniel in the lion's den, it's Darius the Mede that Daniel is serving. Another king, another kingdom. Daniel stays faithful through all of it. But before we get to Daniel in the lion's den and Daniel and Darius... This tells us how Darius comes to power, that the Medes conquered Babylon, that while Belshazzar is throwing a party and not worried about his subjects, only worried about himself and his nobles, while he's throwing a party inside the banquet hall, inside the royal palace, inside, that it's all about to go away because his days have been numbered, his life has been weighed and found wanting. And his kingdom will be divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. This is the message that Daniel gives to Belshazzar. I should just finish the story. The Medes figured out, and they had been working for quite a long time, that if the river Euphrates went under the walls of the 
city of Babylon, all they had to do was divert the river, dam it up, if you will, and divert it elsewhere, which I'm fascinated they could do stuff back in the day, because I'm not sure we could do it without Google and YouTube, right? I mean, I can fix a lot of things or break a lot of things, depending on how you look at it, with Google and YouTube, but this took ingenuity. So they diverted the water of the river Euphrates around where it flowed, and they walked right down into the riverbed and marched their way. They also supposedly bribed some of the guards, and the kingdom gates were opened. And while Belshazzar presumed his life to be safe, he lost his life this very night. So I, years ago, did something of a study of Belshazzar himself, and and just real quickly, this isn't the main point really today, but I do want to remind us of some ways that pride can destroy our lives, because because I think it's worth noting, and so I just want to fill in some blanks very quickly for you. If you do a deep study of Belshazzar's life, you find that pride can destroy my life in a lot of ways. For one, pride can enslave me to other people. You have Belshazzar and his nobles, and he's forgetting about everybody else, but he's consumed with those in power, and he's He's, he's laying down his life for the wrong people for the wrong reasons, if you will. Pride easily enslaves me to other people. You can see this in the realm of social media in just a heartbeat, where, where we begin to think about living for the likes kind of thing. Number two, pride drives me to consume and yet remain unsatisfied. This is the season where we move one day from being grateful for everything we have to the next day, mauling over others to get things at malls. Now, that didn't happen as much this year. I hear there's a pandemic. But how sad is it that, that that's where our culture bounces, you know, where, where we think we have to have the next new thing, the next big thing. We think the next big thing will satisfy. And you, you look at your bank account and you go, well, hey, my bank account isn't worth all that much. But I promise you, people with bigger bank accounts look at theirs and go, hey, it isn't worth all that much. If you ask somebody what's enough, they will always say another couple of zeros, no matter how much they have. Because... We're never satisfied. Pride, number three, creates a waterfall of poor decisions in my life. A, a, a cascading waterfall, if you will. You've seen some of these waterfalls in Oregon that just cascade down and then down and then down. Decision-making is often like that, where one decision cascades into another. And pride easily opens my heart to a waterfall, a cascading waterfall of poor decisions where I make one decision after another. It, I think, was drunkenness, among others, that made Belshazzar say, hey, let's bring in those... He didn't know what he was doing, in a sense. Let's bring in all those goblets from those exiles from way back in Nebuchadnezzar's day, and let's drink with them. And the whole crowd was, yeah! Wasn't just Belshazzar that lost his life this very night. And number four, pride refuses to acknowledge God and change my heart. It's pride that makes me say, mm-mm. It's pride that makes me say, ah, I'm all that. It's pride that makes me refuse to listen to advice. It's pride that hardens my heart. It's pride that says there is no God, and if there is one, I don't need him. It's pride that refuses to acknowledge God, and it's pride that refuses 
to acknowledge my own mistakes and change my heart. Pride, see, fails to recognize that I am where I am by the grace of God. Pride fails to recognize that I am who I am because of the grace of God. And I guess that's what I really want to get at today. And the one thing this message is about, the singular point I want to convince you of today, if I can convince you of anything, is that you and I have to decide who we're living for. In fact, here's the one thing. I must decide every single day if I will use what God has given me for serving others or serving myself. I'm playing on that word gave that was in verse 18 and verse 19, right? That God gave you authority, it said basically, right? Let me find my spot here in my Bible. All right. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. And because of the high position he gave him, all the nations of every language dreaded and feared him. Now, that's a human way of looking at kingdoms and how the peoples of the world saw this dominant kingdom. But if we do a deep dive into studying all of the Bible, what we find is that the reason God gives kings and kingdoms is for the service of others. In fact, you don't have to go back far. There was an image of it in the tree with the dream in chapter 4 and Nebuchadnezzar and how the tree sort of had the birds of the air and people were fed and the birds were fed and it provided shelter. And he says, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the tree. And I don't have time to go into that whole story, but, but go back and listen to it. There's a whole thing there about how God had given Nebuchadnezzar everything he had given him to serve others, but Nebuchadnezzar was only using it to serve himself. And this is, again, the point where it's easy for us to say, you know what, I'm not a king, so this must not apply to me. But every single one of us is given much by God. I am where I am because of the grace of God. I am who I am because of the grace of God. And every single one of us must decide every single day whether I will use what God has given me for serving God and others or for just serving myself. Pride says, as Belshazzar did, that I am the reason I have all this, that all of this exists for me. In fact, I think it's safe to presume that the reason Belshazzar is throwing the party is to celebrate himself. All of this I have is for me. It all exists for me. Serving myself is the human way, the pride-filled way, the sinful way. It's the way of human kingdoms. And it's something we all wrestle with every day. Serving others is the divine way, the holy way, the kingdom way. It's the way of Jesus, if you think about it. When Jesus came, when Jesus was born, what kind of king was he born to be? Did he come to serve himself? Or did he come to lay down his life? So I put in your notes for you, just very quickly, seven dimensions of stewardship. And to make this fast, I didn't make them blanks. And I'm not saying these are the only seven dimensions of stewardship, seven realms of stewardship, but they're just a bunch I thought of, like my life. Right? I am a steward. The steward is a biblical word. It, it means manager. 
right? To steward is to manage. So I am given my life, but my life is not my own. It, it, is, it, is, it is mine to manage. It doesn't exist for me. Really, if I think about it deeply, my life exists for the glory of God, not the glory of Brian. There's my learnings. I have the privilege of having acquired a lot of learnings over the years, some of them the easy way by going to school. Yeah, I called that the easy way. And some of them the hard way by failing over and over and over. I am given much, and my learnings are one of those. How will I steward those? I am given my gifts and my talents, right? That you and I have gifts and talents and skills. We have a certain personality that is wired a certain way, and all of that is given by God. Will I use that for myself or for others? I am given my family. By the way, this also reads a lot like a Thanksgiving list, doesn't it? My family, how will I steward that? How will you steward yours? I am given my income, you know, my revenue, my cash flow, my, you say, but I earned that. My experience has produced that in me. My hands have produced that for me. My, I'm given my relationships. I always, when I think about relationships, write the word circle next to it, write my circle, because you have a circle and I have a circle, and how am I stewarding that? And we're all given our planet. Will we be good stewards of what God has entrusted to us? And these are just seven dimensions of stewardship. You could think of a bunch more. Some of you are business owners. Some of, some of you have responsibilities that are different than mine all of us must decide every single one of us every single day will I use what God has given me for serving God and others or for serving myself I think truly it's probably at least one of life's greatest questions so I want you just super applicational whether you're taking notes or not, I want you to circle something that God would impress upon your heart right now that would be a, you know what, I am hearing from God today, not from Brian, but I'm listening to God and I'm hearing from God today that here's a piece that I need to decide that God has given me, not for myself, but for serving him and others. Just circle that now. And to be super practical, I want to go back through those words that were on the wall. Meaning, Tickle, and Parson or Perez. And it will give us three ways to cultivate humility and gratitude. Maybe you'll mark this down. Three ways to cultivate humility and gratitude rather than pride. The first word was repeated twice. It's, it's, it's meanie, meanie, tiko, parson. I should, number one, live like my days are numbered two. Like my days are numbered two. Because there's a tendency in all of us to live as though we have forever. When we're young, 
we think we're invincible, right? And we're all still young, right? At least we all dream we're still young. We tend to think we're invincible. The Psalms tell us, Psalm 90, verse 12, they ask God to teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. When we don't number our days, we forget to be thankful for them. When we don't number our days, we tend to be presumptive about our days. And quite honestly, when we don't number our days, we tend to get anxious about our days. Jesus reminded us that our days are really in the hand of God, right? Jesus reminded us that our life is not our own. Jesus taught us to rely upon God for our very nourishment. Give us today our daily bread. Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own. How often am I not numbering my days rightly in the way I live. See, my days are numbered too. Now, I don't know what my number is, and you don't know what your number is. But if I knew that my number was up tomorrow, would I live any differently today? I've sat with people who make that sort of, what in church world we would call a deathbed confession, you know, where they wait, like, I'm going to wait until the day, like, I have squeezed everything for me out of life. You know, you take the towel and you wring it, and you wring it some more, you wring it some more. I'm going to squeeze it all out for me, and then on the very last day, then I'm going to say, God, I, I blew it, I need you. And I believe in deathbed confessions. I've, I've been a part of them. I've witnessed them. I've seen people give their life to Jesus in all sincerity after living their entire life to themselves. And I believe that that is powerful when it happens, but I would tell you, you can't presume that you will know that there will be a moment before your days are up. Because like that, in the blink of an eye, a stroke, a heart attack, when we number our days, somehow we begin to say, you know what, maybe life isn't all about me. And maybe that change should happen now, not later. And if pride really is as destructive as we've talked about, it's really better for everybody else around me that I learn that lesson right now, not down the road. Who will I live for, myself or others? For God or for myself? Meeny, meeny. That, that was repeated. <laughs> I almost thought about putting the point in twice. <laughs> live like my days are numbered too, right? Because it was repeated. Tickle. Live like my life also has been weighed, found wanting, and trust that somehow Jesus still wants me. There's some belief that it, it, it went out, the story very early on went to point out that they did all of this Verse 3, they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and they drank from them, right? And they saw, verse 5, the fingers of a human hand appeared on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. 
right? So near the lampstand, may just mean that you could very easily see the light to see the handwriting on the wall. They didn't have all this stuff, right? So they could easily see it. But some commentators have pointed out that if you take a lampstand and you add some light from behind and it shines onto a wall, its image would look like scales. And that would at least sort of exaggerate the point that his life had been weighed and found wanting. The gospel says that my life also has been weighed. My life also has been found wanting. But the gospel says that Jesus still died for me anyway. That I have the same pride problem and the same ego self problem that the king here had. But Jesus did not. And when Jesus came, he lived the way a king should live. And yet for doing that, he laid down his life for mine. I mean, what a, what a trade. Without Jesus, I am weighed and found wanting. But with Jesus, I am weighed and wanted by God who doesn't have to want me. I mean, literally, if you think about it, found wanting is all of the ego and pride and sin, all the destructiveness of my life. And Jesus died for all of that sin. And not only wants to take away all, the, all of that, but he wants to give me his life, his way of life. Somehow Jesus still wants me. Number three, Perez or Parson, I need to live like death is coming for me too, but the life of Jesus still prevails. Death is coming for me too, but the life of Jesus still prevails. I'm simply saying that all of us will die. Right? Only thing guaranteed in life, death and taxes. I don't know. Was that Shakespeare? I don't know. What I do know is that death is coming for me. But the life of Jesus still prevails that there's that moment when i die where i will breathe in the realm of jesus because of what jesus has done for me and i don't have to wait till the day i die to experience the life of jesus the day i knelt bent my knee to him and said jesus i need you and i'm broken and i need forgiveness and i need you to be my savior in that day jesus came in to live inside of me and i get his eternal life on this realm right here right now to live his way of life i mean how powerful is that i won't live forever so i might as well live for what truly matters I will die. My kingdom, my little K kingdom, will be divided. His kingdom will be multiplied. I might as well get on board with that now. Because his life is eternal. So we always end with two prayers here at Harvest. A prayer of salvation, a prayer of application. And I want to pray these prayers with us today, and then we're going to conclude our service. So my big question to you today is, one, do you need Jesus? Because if you do, he loves you and he wants you. Will you just receive his grace? You can pray that with me if you want. And two, whose life are you going to live for? Is life for serving you and for serving Jesus and serving others?
I would challenge you to make that commitment today that I need to live every single day, live my life. And all those things I steward, not for me, but for serving Jesus and serving others. You with me? You want to pray this? All right. Prayer of salvation. If you need Jesus today, maybe you'd pray with me just like this. Just You don't have to physically bend your knee, but if you want to, you can. You just say, Jesus. I don't deserve you or your forgiveness, but I ask for it, and I confess that I am a sinner, and I need you, Jesus, as Savior, so please take over my life as I turn to you. And make my life yours. And put your life inside of me. Make me like you, Jesus, for the rest of my days. Be my God. Be my king. In Jesus' name. You know, if you're online and you prayed that today, or you're here in the room and you prayed that today, it's powerful, and we want to know that. We want to celebrate it. In fact, it's very, one of the very reasons we exist, to help you find Jesus. And so if you'd tell me on the digital communication card, on the paper communication card, maybe you'd find me outside after service today. Maybe you'd email me. I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at harvestchurcheugene.com. Would you just let us know? Or tell somebody who invited you. It's powerful when we discover Jesus, when Jesus finds us. A lot of you, I think, would say with me, you know what, I realize that my life is not my own, that life does not exist for serving me, but for serving God and others. And I need to renew that commitment today. If you would, would you pray this with me? Dear Jesus, you have given me much, much more than I deserve. And so may my life be used to serve you. May my life be used to serve others and not myself. Teach me to live out my numbered days with gratitude. Teach me to live out my days that fall short with grace. Teach me to live out my dying days with your eternal life. Thank you that your life wins <laughs> and your way of life wins. So Jesus, make my life your way of life, the way of servanthood. We pray in Jesus' name together. Amen. Amen. It's powerful when we worship, isn't it? 
So what I want you to do today as we go today is I want you to remember, of course, back in the back, there's the offering box. When we give, we get to be a part of what God's doing. It's powerful when we give. Frankly, what we're given is not ours. It's ours to manage, not ours to keep. It's also powerful when we rely on each other, when we connect with each other. So please remember those communication cards. We'd love to hear from you. All that takes place back in the back. But as you go today, I want you to go knowing that the, the way of Jesus truly wins. And you'll be tempted in the next weeks to live it not the Jesus way, but live it the Jesus way anyway. Because that way of servanthood, that way of sacrifice, that way of generosity, that that way of the Christmas spirit we talk about? Oh, does it win? Let's live with it today. Go in that grace today. I love you all. If I can serve you in some way, I'll be outside in just a moment. We have some snacks outside. We hope you'll enjoy those. Thank you for worshiping with us today. Have a great week.